Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I'm Nate Langson, and this text message was sent on the 26th of April 2015. Joining me this week to discuss the top UK technology news is Andrew Hoyle, senior editor at CNET.com. Later in the show, we're also going to be talking about Google's controversial mobile Geddon, algorithm Geddon, mobile update algorithm, mobile algorithm update. There are many ways to describe it, but there is only one way to explain it, and that's what we've got coming up. We're also going to be talking about Valve, the games publisher and developer, letting developers charge gamers for add-ons in games that they didn't make. What's that all about? I wanted to say thank you before we get on with the news for the 52 people who have left uh, reviews for text message in the iTunes store. Um, We're a five-star show. The proof there is in the pudding. Pudding being iTunes, the UK store. It's a tasty pudding. Uh, 52 reviews. Um, I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you so much. Um, For people who do continue to leave these incredible reviews, please let me know if you leave any on the non-UK iTunes stores um, because I can only see the UK ones without switching through the multiple different stores. So just give me a heads up, podcast at natelangson.com if you leave a review somewhere else and I'll be sure to uh, channel my gratitude to the country most appropriate to receive it, the one you're in. Now let's start talking about news. Andrew Hoyle, Willkommen. Hello. It's been a while since we've had you on. It is, but it's nice to be back. Good. It is nice to be back. And we're going to start by talking about BT. Here is why. We had an email come in from Stephen, who says, Good morning, Nate. It's the evening now. Didn't prepare for that. Did you, Stephen? Uh, Good morning, Nate. Stephen says, really loving the podcast. Um, I was wondering what you felt about BT Mobile not allowing tethering. Can most people use 20 gigabytes of data only via their phone? I'd really been considering moving to BT Mobile until I found out that I would not be able to tether. I found the speed test really interesting as I work and live in Ealing. Now, Stephen wrote in because last week we did a speed test of BT's EE-backed 4G service and found some really good results. And I was about to jump ship and move to BT. Yeah. You remember this? Yeah. Now, the news, people listening out wondering what the news is here, is that I have been in touch with BT and can confirm what Stephen says. Tethering is not permitted. What's the actual quote? What is it that they've said? Well, BT's PR team has been silent. I've sent two emails asking for comment. They were very quick to get the SIM card out to me to test, but I've had absolutely nothing back from them Mm. about this tethering problem. But I did try and speak to some of their salespeople, and this is the quote that I got from their online support people. We don't support tethering because using many devices on one mobile service quickly uses up your allowance and can lead to out-of-plan charges. No. Right. Okay, that's the first thing. Therefore, we want to make sure you're always connected on your mobile and have the right plan for your mobile needs. Oh, I, I hate. See, I hate that. Immediately, I hate that because then it's like, okay, we've taken away this good feature that you want, but it's for your own good. Mm. That's just a cheap get out. I'm very disappointed because up to this point, everything about BT Mobile has been brilliant. The prices are really attractive. The fact that you can get these 
contracts without having to pay for a phone. A lot of people are preferring to bring their own device. That's supported. The fact that you get 20 gig of 4G data for their top plan and it costs about 25 quid. Yeah, it's really good prices. Brilliant prices, good bundle deals. And as we discovered on last week's episode, brilliant speeds. Brilliant speeds and presumably good data coverage as well because it's EE. They've got one of the biggest uh, networks around the country. So wherever you are, should be able to get decent signal. This is quite an exciting thing. And I was definitely excited when I saw their plans. Yeah. And this is, to me, this is really disappointing me because I was there with money in hand and intention in heart to jump ship to BT and this has this is this has put it cold for me and how much I, do you use tethering though tethering i rely on a lot and it's the reason why i currently have 3 on my iphone and ee on my ipad because i travel a lot i work remotely a lot i work a hell of a lot on my laptops and things and i need to be able to tether so right now you've got separate plans for different devices i pay for two separate plans yeah so most people would be able to have the one plan particularly if you've got a 20 gig and then just tether using that 20 gig of allowance they could tether onto their yeah. laptops and their ipads as well 20 gig would be fine for me like, yeah. i do use more than 20 gig a, gig a month but i know that part of the reason why i do do that is i have a lot of um, podcasts that download automatically and i don't restrict it to only wi-fi so right. i'm pretty sure i can i can i that's can, a hell of a lot of podcasts i subscribe to 43 uh, okay i think that i could get that down to under 20 gig quite comfortably and that's that's not a problem so but this is this is really disappointing to me and i'm going to follow up with bt and i'm going to find out if this is something they intend to change because right now as far as i'm concerned they have crippled what could be the most exciting 4g service in the uk definitely right now well three when three first launched um or certainly launched its um uh, all you can eat bundles didn't support tethering either that's that true was something but, they brought in but that's different because that makes more sense when it's on all you can eat because they need to be able to limit it they don't want people putting them their t- laptops on a mobile network and accidentally through whatever reason whether deliberate on BitTorrent or what have you eating up tons and tons of data and yeah, clogging their, their network but this is you know i have a limit of, of gigs here you know i can't go over that limit now i agree that maybe not allowing tethering by default is fine. A lot of networks don't enable it by default. You have to call up and say, please enable tethering because it requires an update going through to the phone. Um, But that should be my choice. This is my money. It's my 20 gig. And if I want to use 20 gig in one day for BitTorrent, legally, let's just assume, then that's fine. It's my 20 gig. Absolutely. And this whole thing about, oh, it being so weak and so you don't have any sort of bill shark, it's for your own good, it's just complete nonsense. I mean, let's put aside the fact that BT, of course, will want you to use more data and to, you know, then you can add extra data bundles on and whatnot. People are easily capable of keeping an eye on their own data the most phones offer like um they have a, a tool where you can see how much data you've used and you can apply warnings when you go near or over your data limit i've got um eight gigabytes of 4g data a month and i rarely go over two or three i don't use it for tethering but so for general mobile use including spotify on the go and podcasts only use about two or three so 20 would be loads and mm. i would want to tether with that and so the fact that i can't means that bt completely is just a no-go for me well that's the key for me is that i wanted to just have one subscription so i currently pay about 20 pounds for my three and i pay i think about 15 pounds for ee and part of the reason i pay for the ee one is because three is too unreliable but i do have the bonus of being grandfathered into all you can eat and the international roaming benefits yeah which does mean that there is enough value for me to at least stick with it if I can justify paying 
EE for a, a, a separate plan. But I can't really do that anymore, and I, I need to consolidate. And I think unless BT changes this tethering thing, they've done themselves out of my custom, which I'm sure they're sort of quivering in their boots. But I think I represent a, a, a large number of people who are keen to be able to do more with 4G because EE is too expensive yeah. for for people like me and on their sim only plans you can only get up to about five gig of data which is just pointless i need more than five and not only do you represent people mate you are also let's not forget doing a podcast and telling a lot of people why you're not doing it i do i do seem to have an audience but this is what was great you know only a couple of days after last week's episode came out i I, you know first email i got from listening was i was considering moving to bt mobile (laughs) you know someone saying it was really interesting but like wtf i can't now so I'm going to keep on at BT, going to see if we can uh, find out a more suitable reason um, for not allowing it and seeing if it's something they can enable in future, in which case I would like to give them my money. Let's move on. We are doing a bit of a mobile focus at the moment, but there is a hell of a lot of excitement going on in the mobile space in the United Kingdom, and so it's worth us paying attention to. There was a story on CNET, um, which I wanted to flag up here because, of course, Andrew is from CNET. I am, that's right. You are indeed. And Rich Trenholm wrote an article this week, just gone, called Carphone Warehouse Reveals Its 4G Mobile Network ID with some help from 3. And to paraphrase, paraphrase Rich's intro, he says that uh, this network's going to launch in May. It's going to offer 12-month contracts, which is attractive. It's 4G LTE with free roaming, uh, which I know from uh, listening to the CNET podcast actually last week is is worldwide but includes different countries yeah. to three and the first phone to be offered on the network is samsung's new galaxy a3 uh, which you can get for basically 20 quid for a 12-month contract 4g 300 minutes a gig of data and 5,000 texts now i think that's a, a pretty interesting offer and obviously carbon warehouse is going for the roaming angle um but it's also on the back of three so andy yeah fill me in here what was your response? What was the CNET vibe um, for for the Carphone Warehouse network news? Well, for me, it was quite mixed. I mean, one, it's interesting to see Carphone Warehouse, typically just a high street shop, getting involved in becoming a, an MVNO, as you call it, um, in offering its own plans, particularly given that it does already sell phones. So now it has the option of selling phones with its own plans rather than Carphone Warehouse normally partnering with other networks and just selling you phones on Vodafone or on O2 or whatever. But my concern, particularly with three, which is something you've already said, that you found three really unreliable in London, and in particularly in terms of its capacity, and it can be really slow. And and I, I mean, I've personally had dropped calls, and and it says I've got plenty of three G signal, but it actually won't do anything. And so I'm concerned that trying to get more people onto three's network, because as, as you say, ID uses all of three's same infrastructure, getting more people on that isn't doesn't sound like it's going to be that good it doesn't if three isn't investing in more space and we do know that it's invested in more spectrum to allow for better coverage uh, within buildings for better example coverage though but not higher capacity networks are always monitoring their systems so i mean three will be aware of, of capacity stuff and and it will be it, it balances probably very smartly from a business perspective it balances its network and its offerings and you know it it will increase capacity but it's not going for high speed three's marketing has always been about 
um, you know, using as much as you want and not having to worry about bill shock mm. and things like this and 4G and all this kind of stuff. It never really goes out for what EE goes for, which, you know, EE never goes out and says we're a good value network, really. No. EE goes out and says we're the strongest, the fastest, the biggest, um, the most coverage. Quality over quantity. Very much. And and three, you know, I have huge respect for three. I think it's a great network. The only problem with it is the capacity issue and that it's basically oversold or feels like it's being oversold so i too would have concerns over the car phone warehouse um, thing and um, i'm going to be trying to see if i can get hold of a sim because it, it could be that three blocks off a portion of its network and, and passes that to car phone warehouse to allow could you know, be I, that would surprise me but you did mention the the roaming and that's really exciting because that's d- certainly threes uh they're the most attractive proposition um certainly to my mind and clearly a lot of other british holidaymakers because most of europe now certainly sort of spain germany france italy uh no roaming costs whatsoever so when you go america america North yeah america. um and australia as well um uh, although three has new zealand but um id will not offer new zealand there are some countries that it won't have as well so i think maybe three is sort of keeping some of those back um as a bit of an exclusivity for themselves i i when i heard that i actually thought it was possibly a uh, more of a negotiation issue that those particular networks in those countries maybe didn't want to have a virtual network running in its country could be could be i don't know i'm not sure i don't know enough for details but that's certainly a really attractive thing and and having i guess when people are going into carphone warehouse they're going in to buy these new phones and so it's perhaps easier for carphone warehouses dealers to be able to talk to them about exactly what the benefits of having this free roaming is rather than people just maybe seeing an advert but not quite getting it Mm. Well, it's interesting for Carfin Warehouse. Um, Carfin Warehouse doesn't normally sell three, so this is a a way for three to make some money, I suppose, from the Carfin Warehouse outlet itself. And I think as well, it represents a shift in high street retail, which as we've seen with the closure of phones for you, has really been moving online. Companies like 3, Vodafone, EE, all these places, they don't need high street stores that effectively do real life price comparison anymore because they have their own stores they can sell online people are much smarter they're more aware they don't need these high street stores anymore so the high street stores need another reason for people to come in other than what they can just get from going to you know the three store next door or online so if if they're moving more into you know internet of things coverage which we've seen yeah um and mobile virtual networks as well then I don't know. I can see that being an interesting business move. We shall keep our eye on it. It's time to talk about video games, specifically the video games industry, the business, and possibly the future of how games evolve over time once they've had their run, perhaps, of uh, success. Uh, after being first released from the stable gates and allowed into the paddock of commercial success. Um, But this is what's happened. Steam, which is the games distribution platform run by Valve, which makes games like Half-Life, Portal, Left 4 Dead, things like that, um, it made a change this weekend to its store. Its store sells games, but it now has allowed the sale of add-ons and mods, not for games that Valve makes, but for other people's games. And in particular, the first one is The Elder Scrolls V Skyrim, which is the most recent single-player game in The Elder Scrolls series. 
up to now there are a load of games that you can buy mods for um you know different costumes to appear in the game but they're all cosmetic and they're all free and they're generally supported by the game's developer they allow add-ons um to be made for their games and they usually affect the user interface and costumes but they don't necessarily directly affect sort of what you can do within the game but this weekend that seems to have been changed a little bit and it's now been enabled or rather what has been enabled is for a developer to sell changes to a third-party game directly to a customer without the creative approval of the game's developer now obviously in this case it's safe to assume that the game's developer bethesda okayed this it's not to say that steam or uh, or Valve, rather, is selling changes to a game and uh, pissing off developers. That's not what we're suggesting here. Um, but it does suggest a new way for games to be monetized in future. Um, I'm going to just read briefly from a, a great write-up on Ars Technica that uh, that I thought summarized this well. And there's a, the article in question is, Steam Workshop lets users sell mods, but only shares 25% of revenue. And this is a paragraph that comes out here. Up until today, the Steam Workshop allowed fans to tinker with compatible games and upload their creations, additions, and updates for the sake of free downloads. What changed today is that those creators can now, after filling out a tax interview and providing a bank account that accepts US dollars, charge users whatever price they please for their new levels, their visual overhauls, and their flaming swords. A creator can still leave their wares on the service's freebies or they can choose either a static price or a pay-what-do-you-want structure. It's also according to the Ars Technica article um, that Skyrim is the first and currently only Steam game where users can bypass the game's developers and sell their add-ons without any creative approval. And uh, Ars notes in in, uh, parentheses afterwards, should an unethical modder modder try to sell other users' Skyrim creations via this updated Steam Workshop, they can file a DMCA takedown notice directly through Valve's site. Well, to talk a little bit about how this may or may not affect the gaming world, I am talking to Dungeon Crawler Network founder Jonathan. Jonathan, how are you doing? Good, sir. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. No, my pleasure. So, I mean... um, Jonathan does a, a fantastic podcast called Tales of Tamriel, which focuses on the Elder Scrolls game, particularly Elder Scrolls Online. It's a, a show I enjoy dearly, as will come to no surprise to many listeners. Um, and uh, so I thought you'd be a really good person to just give a bit of shed a bit of light on, on what this sort of means broadly for the gaming community. Um, Valve effectively enabling the charging of uh, add-ons and content within a game and not just cosmetics but i mean we're talking about the sales of things like spells and all sorts of stuff this is quite a big change i think absolutely it is it's uh kind of caused a little bit of controversy throughout the entire community not just um uh, as of right now valve has it for one of the most popular games which is the elder scrolls 5 skyrim and that's one of the only ones i think they have plans to expand outwards but if you are at all familiar with skyrim and its modding community it is one of the largest modded games out there and some of the stuff out there has been incredible work the people that are that are doing this kind of stuff um but some of the the vitriol and whatnot is some of the more popular add-ons now are carrying a price tag to them uh, sort of like a type of microtransaction kind of deal. Uh, one of the biggest one, Midas Magic, which adds like a hundred different spells to the game. Already huge library of stuff. Uh, 
And these are spells. These are spells. I mean, I know it sounds a bit weird for some of our listeners uh, to sort of talk about spells, but let's just say that you know, new actions and activities that you can that you can do in the game that that Bethesda, who developed the game, did not make. This is something that a effectively a fan has made and put in a game by permission of of Bethesda. They enable the adding of of these sorts of add-ons and make money for. And and then and Bethesda is not involved at all. No, not at all. Uh, as far as we know, but I, I think uh, a lot of the kickback that we're seeing in the community is the fact that the sh- the amount of money, the people are allowed to set their own prices if they want to actually sell their add-on. They can set whatever their own price would be. Um, but the what Valve isn't really telling us on the, on the uh, top level is the creator's only taken about 25% of the actual amount earned. 75% is going to Valve for them to distribute however they want. And I think people are starting to see a little bit of a money-hungry vibe from Valve. And a lot of people are also complaining that maybe a lot of the the quality designers are not going to be around. People are going to start making stuff just for the money now, not because they enjoy the game or that would add a lot of uh, quality to the game, just whatever has the nearest amount of cash value. Now, to put this into sort of a, a broader games business context, um, for, for just a sort of background for people listening, at the moment, if you take an app store like uh, the iTunes app store, they have a 70-30 split with, uh, with customers, which uh, with developers, which means that for the full price of the game or the download that you pay, and this includes in-app payments and microtransactions, 70% of that goes to the company, the games developer, people like, uh, in this instance, um, Valve or, or, or what have you, and 30% goes to Apple, the, the company that runs the store. And that's a fairly uh, standard split across the industry for this sort of a thing. And obviously, over the last few years, we've now seen more and more games going free, and games developers are having to struggle with, do we charge an upfront fee, but run the risk of not enough people actually bothering to pay that money to even try the game to make it a, a worthwhile business, while on the other side, you've got games coming out from massive companies um, where they charge nothing to the game, but the game itself is sort of built and designed around the idea that you will buy things in the game, like extra lives, extra credits, add-ons, and things like that. This, to me, seems like a new business strategy, which is not, which is that you're you're buying the game. And you can have add-ons, but you're letting fans create their own add-ons and have other fans buy those. Like, this is like potentially, and the reason I'm interested in talking about it is just a potential entire new business category. And it's very controversial. Well, speaking of, well, we already talked about the controversy of it. Mostly, I think a lot of it is just because of Valve and some of the negative people see with Valve as a whole, as a company. Taking them out of this, looking at it from... Um, an industry standpoint, this is actually both really good for individual mod developers and um, the company who owns the intellectual properties, in this case, Bethesda, uh, because they're going to get a little bit of a kickback from when other people create add-ons and whatnot. But it's it's kind of like a way for them to continue earning revenue on a game that they've already, like if no one knows this, Skyrim came out in November of 2011, if I remember correctly, and they've officially stated they are not doing any more 
downloadable content, no nothing new. Uh, so everything is player created, but now they're still going to start getting a little bit of revenue from some of these really good mod creators. Not only that, but we've all heard stories about people interested in creating video games and whatnot. A lot of them started as freelance modders and whatnot who modded something for the game and it became so popular that the um, developer looked at it and went, wow, this mod has been downloaded X times and it's one of the largest ones available for our game. Maybe we should pick him up as a developer. Maybe this will be a way for independent um, mod or mod creators to actually get their work out there and based on like a revenue chart, because we all know businesses uh, see the revenue more than maybe downloads going, hey, we've earned X amount of dollars from this, like more than any other one. Maybe we should consider hiring this guy to develop content for future games. Mm. So, I mean, just to wrap up then, I mean, if you if you with it with a gun to your head, uh, it's a bit extreme, actually, no, with a with with a, a podcast host demanding some sort of definitive outlook, would you say that this is once we get past the controversy, do you think this is something that fans and developers could actually find a, 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 a sort of a find it to be a, a useful thing? Do, do, will this continue, basically, do you think? I think if. I think there needs to be more of a structure laid in, uh, specifically with Valve. And the reason why I say that is I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing for game companies who maybe have stopped development on a piece of work, such as Skyrim. They've stopped their development on it, so they're still earning a little bit of revenue from new content from people still playing. Um, and develop or, uh, individual modders and, and programmers will get a little bit more exposure because they may, you know, a lot of people do it as a hobby and this is maybe a way of them earning a little bit of money back for their hobby they'll be more apt to do it create bigger and better things i think it's really good i just think as in terms with the controversy there needs to be a little bit more of a uh, standard line of this is where the money's going that way people aren't going valve's taking everything we're not getting anything who knows how much bethesda's getting there i think there needs to also be a cap going bethesda comes out and says listen I'm not going to let you make a sword for the game and charge $100 for it. It's just not going to happen. There needs to be a little bit more structure. Once they get that in line, I think it's very good for the industry as a whole. Great. Jonathan, thank you very much. Just remind people where they can hear more of your uh, your commentary and uh, content in the video games world. Absolutely. You can uh, find us over at dungeoncrawlernetwork.com. And you can, of course, find our podcast, Tales of Tamriel, if you're interested in The Elder Scrolls Online on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, all those fun places. Last week, Google did something different and interesting. It updated its algorithm on the web, which means that pages that were optimized for mobile devices, like phones, it's pretty obvious, tablets, small screens, basically, they were treated differently in search results, which basically meant on a very basic top line level that if you are a website that has a mobile optimized design, it's likely you will be ranked higher in Google's search results. I am joined now by Kate Dreyer, who is SEO strategy lead at a Richmond-based agency, Positive. Hello, Kate. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Now, what I just said, was that actually accurate is that what google's done has it made mobile websites higher in google that is the intention yes right and actually what what does this actually do for people like how would i notice a difference like how do i see if a site has been has benefited from this 
Well, a normal everyday user of Google will see um, more mobile optimized sites when they search and also they will see a little gray label next to the website that says mobile friendly. Um, so they'll know that before they click on it, whether they're going to see a, a website that fits on their screen or not, or is good to use, basically. What counts as mobile friendly? What is a mobile friendly site? So Google gives um, sort of five issues that they flag up when you run their tests. So things like the text being too small, um, images and things running off to the side. So you have to scroll sideways um, and not configuring a mobile viewport in the code. What is that? That is um, sort of an element of responsive web design, which makes sure web designs fit within various screen sizes. That, so who does, this, who does this benefit primarily? Well, users primarily is what Google wants to, or who Google wants to help, but also obviously uh, website owners who have mobile optimized websites will see benefits. Um, it will negatively affect people who haven't got the time, the resources, the money to put into their website to optimize them that seems a bit unfair if i haven't the money to spend on a redesigning my website for google yeah in a way but also if you are the most relevant you will still appear google will always put relevancy first and this mobile ranking factor is still only one of about 200 ranking factors so relevancy is always the top okay and has there been much indication at all that this is already affected people or websites at all? At the moment, it's still thought to be rolling out and it could take a couple of weeks. Um, there was a, a preliminary study um, done over the weekend um, by Search Metrics, which was only US-based at the moment, and they've seen that Reddit actually came out really bad um, and has lost loads of mobile rankings. Um, and they have a like a top 50 winners and losers, um, which is quite interesting. But it is only US-based, and it is still really early days, so we don't really know. That's amazing. So Reddit, I didn't know that. Reddit's, Reddit's really bad. I was thinking, actually, yeah, now Reddit doesn't really have a mobile-optimized site, does it? No. It's kind of big and fat and wide. Yeah. So Reddit needs to optimize for mobile to get its rankings back. In theory, yeah, but do Reddit users really care? I suppose so. A lot of Reddit people use apps Exactly. I guess, for, for apps. Okay. So, I mean, how significant is this? Just to sort of wrap this up, like it's easy to say, I think there'll be a lot of people listening who think, okay, Google's updated this thing and it affects mobile sites. Like, is that really a big deal for me? I mean, is this significant? Like, I mean, is this the kind of thing that the average person listening to this should be aware of? I think if you're just a normal person who's not interested in technology and just wants to find when the cinema is open, then maybe not. But if you are a person with a website or someone interested in technology, then yes, I think it is important because obviously, you know, if you have a website, you want to make sure you're getting as much traffic as you can. And I imagine a lot of people's traffic does come from Google, so you need to keep on top of what they're doing. I think it's like 90% of European search traffic, isn't it? Goes through Google, but 90. Yeah. That's quite a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've written a blog on your website. Yes. How do people find it? Um, at the moment, go to positive.co.uk and it's the last blog post on there. Um, but if it's not the last one, then search for Mobile Geddon. Mobile Geddon, is that the official name? It's the unofficial name. 
<laughs> Search Mobile Geddon Kate Dreyer positive on Google and find that. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Bye. Several weeks ago, Apple announced its new MacBook, and this is a ultra, ultra thin addition to the MacBook line that sits alongside the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. It was the first MacBook, and indeed the first Mac, and one of the first computers to feature a fanless design, much like the iPad and other tablets, which means it can run very cool and entirely silently due to the fact that it has no moving parts, not even a fan inside to keep the chip cool. And this was a a launch I went over to in Berlin to see firsthand and was very, very excited about the launch of this computer because on the one hand, it looked like exactly the sort of machine I really wanted, which was something that was designed to be even more portable and compact than than the MacBook Air. Um, but in a body that let it still retain some sense of usefulness. Um, for me, the MacBook Air has lots of ports. It's very much designed to be plugged into a monitor and was designed to be some reasonably powerful, but not up to the level of the MacBook Pro, whereas the new MacBook doesn't even have a port to be plugged into a monitor. And it's very much designed to be the kind of device that you never need to plug into anything other than the power outlet to charge it up. It comes with a number of interesting innovations. It has a force-sensitive trackpad, it has a slightly larger keyboard, retina display, no fans as I mentioned, and it has Intel's new Core M processor on the inside, which although not as powerful as the i3, 5 and 7 chips in the higher-end machines, does offer things like much better battery life and obviously the lack of any need to be cooled by a rotating fan. I've got one now. Here it is. In my hand. And... I wanted to take a look at it. I've only had this here for a couple of days. I've got it for a couple of weeks. And on next week's show, I'm going to do more of a proper review once I've had time to actually use it amongst my work and personal life a little bit more. But I wanted to have a bit of a discussion about it. Now we've got it here. Got some initial benchmarks and tests. And Andy, when I was uh, showing it to him earlier this weekend, was intrigued about how this is any better really than an iPad Air with a nice keyboard attached. That was your view, wasn't it? That was completely my first view, um, and I stand by that, um, to be honest. Uh, even in the intro you just gave, a lot of the things or the features that you point out, I don't see any difference to uh, an iPad. You say this has just the one input for power, it's not designed to be plugged into something else, much like an iPad. It has a retina display, much like an iPad, has no fans, much like an iPad. See where I'm going here. Um, and so uh, the point with this is really it's it's small, it's lightweight, it's for taking to, you even said it was, oh, this is really the thing for taking to a coffee shop to do word processing, sending some emails. The iPad Air with a keyboard case does that brilliantly. And sure, I get the idea that having Mac OS X on, uh, on an actual small laptop is slightly more easy to use for multitasking and things. The problem with this is that this is so much more expensive. This is more expensive than the iPad, than the uh, MacBook Air. So I don't understand this pricing. For me, this sits absolutely between the iPad Air and the entry-level um, uh, MacBook Air, sorry, which would put this around the £600 mark, but it's not. It's over £1,000. It is just over £1,000, yeah. It's, I think 1049 is the entry price at the moment. And 
when you feel it, I mean, number one, it does feel like a, a more premium product than the MacBook Air, I think. It, there is something about the design that just feels nicer than the Air. And I'm not sure if, I mean, and that is very much a subjective opinion. I mean, for me, one of the things that it does offer is it allows the feeling of not having to compromise on productivity when you're out and about. So at the moment, I still find that I do take my laptop places for some things and my iPad to places uh, for other things. You know, I generally don't take my laptop into meetings at work. I don't take it when I go for meetings um, with clients or journalists or anything else out in the field. I, I generally take uh, use it for taking notes uh, if I'm doing interviews and features and things like that. However, I do still take my MacBook when I go into coffee shops and for doing work because I need to be able to think, okay, well, I need my photo editing applications. I need to be able to have basically the same setup that I would have at home or at the office, but on my lap, on a plane. I need to be able to have multitasking going on. I need the uh, you know overlapping windows. I need to have two things easily side by side to copy between the two. And they are things that, although an iPad can do it, they are they don't make it as fast. You know, iPads are very good for doing one one thing at a time, maybe a couple of things. But sometimes in my line of work, I need a big window open for my corporate email. I need word processing open. I need my web browser open. I need something running in the background. I maybe need to be editing photos as I go along. And, and I know that you do this the same because you use a MacBook Pro and there are things that you wouldn't use a MacBook for or rather there are things that you wouldn't use an iPad for that you would use an iPad for. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, but for me, mostly it's down to, because I, I do a lot of photography, so I need the the brute force that the MacBook Pro has for editing you know, huge, huge, huge RAW files. But the things you're talking about doing, having, having extra um, multitasking when you're talking about going between word processing and your corporate email, I get that, that's fine, but is... Uh, so is there is so many hundreds of pounds more is that justified for a bit more efficiency and a bit more speed that was it seems to me like something that i'd happily pay maybe an extra couple of hundred pounds for again around a 600 pound sort of price as like the end this is the entry level light macbook this, is, this should be macbook light really this should be but it's not it's priced so much higher like why would people go for this over the macbook air sure it's a little bit lighter and smaller but not significantly so i think that's a really good question because the air is more powerful than this yeah the air is a more powerful machine and that's a question that i don't want to answer right now purely because i've only had it for two days that's a question that i'm looking forward to answering next week um once i've actually had it for a full week because i've used ipad airs for work weeks i use my macbook my macbook pro and i'm curious to see you know will i miss this when i send it back to apple you know, because if I find that I miss it and I'm thinking, actually, this is a thing, then that's going to be my reason to justify to myself why I would buy one, if I do. Not actually planning on doing. But even then, you're talking about, oh, will I miss it? You're talking, will I miss it in terms of actually using it? But it's the the, the, the problem with this is down to the price. And that's something that, as you ha- you haven't paid for this, that's a very... That's a very different uh, a d- different question. This really, I do see, in terms of the use case, excuse the term... Its nearest competitor then really is the iPad, not the MacBook, and it needs to be priced closer to that. Well, we'll find out. Um, I'm going to uh, just give you some interesting, uh, not benchmark numbers, but just to give you a sense of the performance here. Um, I wanted to test how this would, how the machine would work with gaming, because super low-powered machines like the, or rather super efficient power. It's not low-powered; it's just a lot slower than other machines. I was still able to play the Elder Scrolls Online. 
Okay. Now, admittedly, I had to drop the settings to quite low, below, uh, quite a bit below medium to get it to play at about 20 to 25. Playable rate then. To a playable rate. Yeah. It was doable. I tried a much older game, Half-Life 2, which played at, you know, I I couldn't tell the exact frame rate, but it was definitely well over 30 frames a second at high settings graphics. It's not to be surprised. It's not surprising. That's a decade old game, but it does suggest that I can at least use the game for on the use the system for on the go gaming um, and things like that, which for me in my travel world and my obsession with Elder Scrolls is an important factor. So it's good to know that I can do that, but absolutely this is not a machine for gaming or for any significantly heavy-duty 3D work, even medium-duty 3D work. I haven't yet done a lot of photo editing on here. Um, the one thing I have done is I tested how long it took to convert a um, a Blu-ray rip of an f- episode of Friends, um, which I'd encoded at just over 4 megabits per second, 1080p, mm-hmm. down to 2.5 megabits per second, um, 720p. And sorry, it was 720p to begin with into 720p again, just a direct encode. And it took about half an hour to convert one episode, which is a very, very long time. How long did your MacBook, your other MacBook, take? I want to do a direct comparison, but we're not talking more than about five minutes. Right, yeah. okay, so it's a lot slower yeah. then on this one. It's a, it's a lot slower. So again, it's really not for multimedia use. It's not for gaming. It's not for um, video and photo editing. It is down to... Uh, for word processing, working in Google Docs, using mail and using calendar? If, in a sense, yes. But here's, here's, the, here's the thing I would disagree with because the fact is it can do those things. It's not as fast, but it can do them. And it can do the gaming for me as long as I know what I'm expecting. So, it, yeah, but, but nobody's going to buy it for gaming. Nobody's going to think, oh, oh, even if people think, oh, I, I might want to do some gaming on the go, and so I'd like something that can handle it if I want it. If that was the case, I'd go for the iPad, uh, the iPad, sorry, the uh, MacBook Air, because then they've got a little bit more power to do that gaming. You're you're talking about playing a bit of Half Life, but I just no, I just I don't. Well, I don't th- bear it. in mind the the iPad, the MacBook Air doesn't have a Retina screen, and that does make a big difference these days. If I was to buy a MacBook Air tomorrow, I would notice that all of my devices have these super high resolution screens and then my new portable with a fan MacBook Air has kind of comparatively a pretty low resolution screen. So, but what if Apple updated the uh, MacBook Air with a retina display? I cannot hypothesize because because it hasn't updated them yet. Still, what I'd like you to do is if you do it, I'd like to see, because you you're talking about, oh, I want to do a whole day of work on this. You've, I'm going to do you've a got whole week of work. A whole week of work. But I'd like you in that week to also do a day of work on the iPad with the keyboard and see like genuinely what, can, what can't you do on the iPad that you can do on this. But I do that already. That's my point. I do already work most of my day on an iPad because I spend very little time at my desk. I'm always in meetings and running around. Okay. So most, I would say probably 80% of my day in terms of computing is actually already done on an iPad. Cool. That's one of the reasons I was excited about this machine is because I don't want to carry my big £2,000 MacBook Pro everywhere. I need that in certain places. What I need is something that's basically better than an iPad, but not as heavy, bulky or power hungry as my macbook pro so that's what i'm looking to get out of the next week and i will have a full review on next week's show let me know if you have any specific questions about this computer or anything we've talked about um over the last few minutes podcast at natelangson.com or at natelangson on twitter that 
is going to do it for this week's show. I want to say thank you to Andrew Hoyle, who has been uh, very kindly stepped in for a a little poorly Ian today. So um, get well soon, Ian. Thanks very much. Andy, remind people um, of some recent features you've done and where they can find you on on the web. Uh, you can find all my stuff at cnet.com. Recently, I... What have I done recently? I went and saw the London's Air Ambulance. And I went to meet those guys to see how they have been using apps and 4G to cut their response times to emergency crashes by two minutes. Interestingly enough, a, converse, a feature about 4G and the use of iPads during work, not dissimilar to this week's episode of Text Message. And that's why I thought I'd bring it up now. So how can people find that? CNET.com and search for Air Ambulance? Air Ambulance will be fine, yes. Uh, I've been tweeting about it loads. uh, Battery HQ on Twitter, so you can find it all on there. Andrew Hoyle, CNET.com, thank you very much. And obviously, let us know any comments you have about today's show. Podcast at NateLangston.com. Thank you for your continuingly excellent reviews. They mean the world to me and Ian and indeed everyone who enjoys the show because it will basically keep that going as long as people are listening to it and telling us that they want to keep listening to it. We will see you, hopefully with Ian again, next week. <laughs>